While this podcast will cover information about how to access therapy and other mental health services, it is not intended to be a substitute for said services. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you feel you are in need of mental health assistance, please seek out licensed professional care in your area. that type of therapy podcast. Welcome folks to Mental Health Quest, the therapist office and beyond. We're here to answer your questions about mental health, including how to access it, what it looks like, why should you do it? All of the above. And so much more. Hey everyone, this is Charlene from Mental Health Quest, and I'm going to introduce my co-host. I am Benjamin Tights. I am a registered psychological associate in California. I uh, work in clinical and forensic psychology, and I am excited to be back for another episode talking about schizophrenia. Oh, yeah, and I didn't mention I was an LCSWC, but you guys already know that if you've listened to previous uh, episodes. Everybody's listening to all our episodes all the time, I'm sure. (laughs) Hopefully. (laughs) And then we have our special guest on today. Patricia. Hi, everyone. My name is Patricia, and I'm also a licensed clinical social worker um, working with mentally ill patients at a crisis stabilization unit. Awesome. So I'm going to do like a really cool radio announcer introduction for Patricia because she is super cool. Uh, For our listeners who don't know, I used to work with Patricia at my very first job out of school. She was uh, like the person who trained me. Basically, the clinician I am today is a big part thanks to Patricia. So radio announcer voice on. Patricia Alizaraz, if I'm mispronouncing that, I'm sorry, is a licensed clinical social worker. She has over 15 years of social work experience across hospital, community mental health, and private practice settings. Drawn to the field of mental health early on, Ms. Alizaraz completed her Bachelor of Science in Human Services at Cal State University Fullerton in 2006. She then obtained her Master's of Social Work from Cal State University Fullerton in 2009. She has experience working with schizophrenic clients in a hospital and mental health settings over 10 years. She has gone on to complete additional training in a wide variety of areas, including trauma-focused behavioral cognitive therapy, parent-child interaction therapy, and functional family therapy. When she's not seeing patients, Ms. Elizaraz enjoys hiking, dancing, and traveling as often as possible when there's no pandemic. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am so excited for you to be here, especially since we're uh, covering schizophrenia today. It is not one of my specialties, so I'm very excited to, to learn some stuff today. So the first thing we normally like to start off with, Patricia, is what the definition, kind of your, um, the way you kind of explain to your clients what schizophrenia is. 
I would say schizophrenia is a very serious mental illness that affects how a person thinks, feels, and behaves. And a lot of times we usually start uh, seeing the a person maybe experience their first psychotic break anywhere between the ages of 16 and 30. Um, they may, but a lot of times it's it's very common that it happens like around age 25. Like we start seeing this first episode somewhere like in college maybe if if um, someone would attend college, or crisis happens, something like that, we would notice, or maybe like a huge traumatic event. That's when we would notice um, maybe like the first psychotic episode that later on would possibly be diagnosed with schizophrenia. In, um, in that initial uh, crisis, what what are kind of the the signs and symptoms that you see? Some of the first possible. Uh, signs that we would see or symptoms would be like a gradual change in mood or um, thinking, maybe something's going on like social functioning, um, like something becomes different. So uh, maybe they're staying like in their room. So sometimes, I mean, we want to make sure like it, it takes time to diagnose schizophrenia just because you want to rule out other uh, mental illnesses. And, and then obviously, like, you want to make sure that, you know, it takes, I know sometimes it takes, like, even, like, 10 years to get the right diagnosis. So it's not something that might happen right away. It might happen, like, in years. Like, you might, it might someone might have schizophrenia, but they might not know till like, maybe five, seven, 10 years from now when they're actually correctly diagnosed. Just to kind of um, reflect on what you said, I um, worked at a counseling center uh, for a college and, you know, it makes sense to me that you said that you see kind of this, this, uh, the first crisis, you know, kind of in the early 20s or whatever. Um, That was something that I was not expecting when I started the college job um, was like first time diagnoses. You know, I had been working with like teens and kids and, you know, adults that have been diagnosed, you know, for a long, long time. And then going into the college and then having someone have their first, um, you know, episode where they, they had to go to the hospital or, you know, um, needed that extra support. It definitely was not, it was something that was surprising just working with a, a college population you know, to see. So um, it definitely, it fits with what I just wanted to say. It fits with what you just said, that, that, that first break, not understanding what's going on and then, you know, going to college and, and it being, you know, the first time you kind of get diagnosed or, you know, talk to a therapist about it. Yeah. And I mean, from my personal experience, like working in the hospital setting, I, I mean, I'm sure Ben remembers, but, um, you know, we did see a lot of people like in their early twenties, like they were, they were hospitalized because, you know, they're already going to college, taking classes. There's so many pressures going on, so many changes and, you know, maybe family starts noticing they're acting bizarre or there's like something going on, you know, cause a lot of times I think families won't notice like voices, I think that's more internal than the patient might start hearing voices or having hallucinations, maybe delusions, but they won't, no one else will notice because it's all internal, like in their head. 
So then later, I think maybe then it will be people that actually notice like, well, there's something going on with them. Like they spend a lot of time in their room or, you know, they, they're talking to themselves or, you know, I, I think it, it really does take time to uh, get the right diagnosis of schizophrenia. And we want to make sure that, you know, cause you have, you have to have these symptoms for at least six months. So, I mean, it, you really have to like, as a clinician, you, you have to make sure you have a good thorough history and, um, you know, you get all as many collaterals as you can just to make sure that this person is being diagnosed appropriately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do remember we had quite a lot of that at the hospital where Patricia and I worked. Um, and I think one of the most, I think, challenging parts of it was, you know, these are young people that, you know, they don't realize what's going on. Um, and and this is actually a big thing for schizophrenia in general is that there's not a lot of that insight. Like they don't believe that they're sick, um, but their families are noticing changes in their behaviors and maybe they're a bit more suspicious. They're paranoid. You know, they're more like erratic. And, you know, I remember, uh, you know, Patricia and I having to talk to families and try to explain to them what's going on. Um, and that's difficult for any family member to hear, but then you also get into uh, cultural expectations and, and norms, and that also becomes really challenging because if the behaviors are, you know, first of all, behaviors of schizophrenia are outside of norm for most cultures. Um, and so it trying to explain, you know, maybe the family's never had someone with a mental health issue before, and this is the first time, and, and you know, there's a lot of pressure on the client, the, the patient, Maybe it's the, they're the first ones in their family to go to college. And so they might start having feelings of shame. Like, wait, I th- I'm supposed to be the one doing good and I'm, I'm supposed to be the first one in college. And now I'm failing at this because I'm having these problems. And so it can be really challenging to, to uh, explain to the clients about what's going on. Yeah. And maybe like, um, you know, a lot of times it's like, I mean, it's rare that we would see it in like high school students, um, but maybe there's like tiny little signs that they wouldn't be noticed till like maybe, you know, 10 years later when things get worse or more severe, you know, so then be they're going through more stressors and then, you know, things like that. So then it might take, you know, they might start hearing voices, but no one really notices or, you know, it's it's not as bad that, you know, it's concerning for anyone else. Um, if, especially if they don't tell anyone um, or they don't ha- have anything like that. So, um, I mean, I think that's why it takes time and um, to actually get the correct diagnosis of schizophrenia. That brings us to a, a really interesting point is to get the right diagnosis um, because schizophrenia, the symptoms of schizophrenia, you know, the, the voices, the delusions, the erratic behavior, sometimes are, are misunderstood by clinicians, you know, even people who, who work in this field. Um, what can be some of the, like, misdiagnoses that a client with schizophrenia might receive um, if maybe the clinician doesn't have all the right information or maybe they, they see it differently? Um, what are some kind of easily kind of mistaken other disorders that they can be mistaken for? Um, so we want to make sure, like... Um... Like another one that would be, I think the probably the most common um, would be like schizoaffective disorder, which is a different 
um, diagnosis and the main difference between um, schizophrenia and schizoaffective. Um, I mean, schizoaffective disorder is schizophrenia, but also a mood disorder. So it has to do um, depression or like a bipolar disorder. So a lot of times that's like the major difference between schizoaffective disorder and schizophrenia. And schizophrenia is, um, I mean, it's pretty much the more like the delusions, hallucinations. And really, I mean, we want to make sure we differentiate the diagnosis just because it might affect them in very similar ways, like in their everyday activities or things like that, but also the timing of things like um, you have to have these symptoms for over six months for schizophrenia. And um, speaking of symptoms, can you kind of describe, you know, we said um, delusions, hallucinations and things like that. Um, what uh, with clients that you've worked with, like, what do those actually look like? You know, people see movies and things like that, and um, it kind of shows you the extremes. But, like, what's the common kind of uh, experience for people with schizophrenia when it comes to uh, delusions or um, hallucinations? Um, so the, there's pretty much three main categories for schizophrenia, and um, I can go a little into each one of them. So there's like psychotic, negative, and cognitive. Um, so some of the psychotic symptoms include the way the person is thinking, acting, and experiencing the world. Um, so what that might look like is like um, they might think something is real in their, in their world, something is real, but to other people, that's not real. So, for example, like, they think the sky is pink, but we know it's blue. But in their mind, the sky is pink. So, um, it's just, they experience the world in a distorted way. And they might lose a sense of reality with others. Um, so, a lot of times, it happens that, you know, like, they're psychotic and they're not, like, recognizing who mom is or something like that. Um, so they really kind of lose a, a, a sense of reality with others and um, they're experiencing the world in a different way. Um, a lot of times they have these uh, the hallucinations, which is what they see, what they hear, what they smell. So pretty much they can be tactile. It's all of our senses. So pretty much um, they might be seeing something that's not there. They might be he hearing something. Um, you know, um, those are the most common, I would say, the, the vi visual and, and then the auditory hallucinations. Those are the most common. I mean, the, the other ones like smells, tastes, and, and feels, but I don't think we see those and they're not as common. So I think the most apparent ones are definitely visual hallucinations and auditory hallucinations. And the hearing voices is very common. Yeah, so like the... Visual hallucinations, like from my understanding, like it, you know, people think it's going to be like a whole person, you know, people are seeing like a whole person when it doesn't necessarily have to be that can, um, what examples have you kind of seen when it comes to like, again, you know, the whole point of this podcast is to kind of decrease stigma and things like that. Right. So, you know, um, inform people on what act is actually going on instead of, um, 
you know, just depending on the movies to, to kind of tell us how this stuff works. So just, you know, kind of what the common experience with hallucinations are and, um, you know, the auditory and the, the visual hallucinations. So a lot of times, I mean, I, I think we want to make sure like, um, just because someone has schizophrenia, I think there might be a misconception that that person could be violent or dangerous. I want to say that that's not correct. I mean, I feel like if anything, someone that is ex- experiencing all these other, I mean, obviously all of these symptoms, they might be more afraid of the world than anything. But I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, no, they're you know, they have schizophrenia or they're like afraid of maybe someone that's like walking in the street. And, you know, we have a lot of, you know, I mean, we, we have a lot of homeless people and things like that, that suffer from mental illnesses and they're in the streets and things like that. You know, so I I feel like there might be a misconception that someone with schizophrenia is like violent or scary, you know, but at the same time, I, I think they might be more afraid of the world based on everything that is going on internally like they might think the world is not safe or there's people chasing them or after them you know like that so um i feel like they might be more in fear rather than like let's say we see a movie and then we see someone that's paranoid and hearing voices and they you know like hit someone or i don't know like become violent towards a person i mean yes there's that potential that could happen if maybe the schizophrenia is left untreated and it's getting severe and things like that. But I feel like for the most part, it's like the opposite, you know, that they're more afraid of, you know, like the voices that are like, they might think, you know, they're someone's after them or chasing them or getting hurt or they're going to hurt them, stuff like that. And I think a lot of a big thing is like paranoia also with schizophrenics. That's like a huge sign to that they're I mean that's like a very common that they're they're paranoid that they're gonna get hurt or someone's after them that's something that they experience a lot could you um maybe try to kind of demystify a little bit more about the difference between hallucinations and delusions because I I know in a lot of media they kind of mix those two up a lot and you know they might you know, just call someone, you know, delusional when it's not really a delusion or, or they'll say delusion when it's a hallucination. What are the differences Mm -hmm. between the two? Um, So like an easy way to think about it, like if we think about hallucinations, it's pretty much like thinking of your five senses, you know, like hearing, seeing, uh, smell, taste, all of those. And then, um, obviously, like, uh, just hallucinations are more like the senses, I would say. The delusions, those are the beliefs, the strong beliefs that are not true. And um, they may seem irrational to others, but to that person, that is their reality. Uh, For example, like, um, someone with a delusion might believe that people on the radio and television are sending them special messages that you know require a certain response or they might believe that they are in danger or that others are trying to hurt them so i think just like the basic to understand the difference is really hallucinations just thinking of the senses what do we see what do we hear um and the delusions it's 
the belief, like they, they might believe there is aliens in their backyard or, you know, they might believe people are sending the messages through TV, things like that. Like I was saying earlier, like the hallucinations don't have to be like a whole person or anything like that. I've heard like there's, there's just like images sometimes there's, you know, those type of things. It's not always like a person. Like when people think of like hallucinations, they think, oh, they're seeing another person. It's like not always. No. And I, I think also going back to hallucinations, I think a lot of them could be command hallucinations. We would see those a lot. Like the voices are saying they could possibly say, you know, hurt this person or and a lot of it is, again, internally. So it's like to hurt themselves, you know, so it's like then then that's how they end up like on a 5150 or something like that. They end up in a hospital because they possibly might have tried or attempted to hurt themselves. Right. Because those are, uh, those are a lot, as far as I understand, at least in my work, um, those type of hallucinations where it's like towards yourself are a lot more common than towards anyone else. Um, and that's, you know, that's why we always try and watch out for, for things like that to help keep people safe. Yeah, I think that, I, I think that's like the main thing that there, it's a lot of internal like it's inside their head inside their you know it's like uh it really it's really affecting their brain and like i don't want to get into like research and things like that but i mean we know that someone with schizophrenia their brain is different i know that's like probably a huge subject (laughs) yeah but uh ben knows that i love like research and neuroplasticity and all that fun stuff so like you know, I guess the the question I have, and and somebody uh, said this to me a, a long time ago, so I'm not not sure if it's true or not. But like, you know, are there physical differences between when they do a scan of a person that doesn't have schizophrenia and a person that does have schizophrenia? Can they like physically see the difference between the two, or is it more, um, you know, kind of neurological? Um. Yeah, I think they're able to. Like, if you would do like a brain scan and do a person without schizophrenia and a person that does have schizophrenia, you'll see differences in the brain. There's something um, different. Yeah. Yeah. Cause somebody had said to me that, you know, again, I had a client that was much older, but also had some substance use. So obviously uh, that was involved as well, but you know, they basically had said like, that it um it can it can like destroy like gray matter um and they'll actually be like voids of gray matter um because of how it kind of affects the brain and again i don't know if that's 100 percent true that was told to me when i was an intern in like 2010 or something like that so i don't know <laughs> that was is still true but it was really interesting to to hear um and that client was one of my favorite clients we we always had a, a good time together i just uh i love the the research stuff any other re- like specific research on schizophrenia you want to mention like any like cool facts or anything well i'll just about like the brain structure um there is like a difference in size 
in certain brain areas and in connections between the brain areas. I mean, again, I'm I'm not a doctor, so I'm not gonna speak on that. Um, I just know that there is a difference in the size of the certain brain areas and the connections that happen. So if again, if you compare, like if you were to see it in a in a screen and you you know take a a, a scan of a person with schizophrenia and one without, it would be very apparent. Like you would you, you would tell the differences and um but i feel like there's also like so much research that still needs to be done and to understand really how the brain functions and, and the structure and and how that all relates to um schizophrenia yeah definitely so you had talked earlier about some differential diagnoses um that might get um misdiagnosed instead of uh, schizophrenia. And I, I think you had mentioned bipolar and depression. Was that right? Yes. Why do people tend to get those things mixed up? Um, or why do clinicians get those mixed up so much? Well, I think a challenge is, um, you know, maybe someone that is having symptoms might not get help like early on. So I think that might be a challenge. And, and then also another challenge that we face as mental health providers is, you know, you might not see that client um, over like in, in within like a f- period of time or years, mm-hmm. I, you mm-hmm. know, because they go through, you know, some like a lot of people like they may, they might get help and then stop. And then like two, three years later, some they might have another psychotic episode, then they end up in a hospital again. So I think it really takes time just because, you know, initially, maybe when they're in college or even as a teenager, they might show signs of psychosis or something else. So initially, any clinician would most likely diagnose that person as like psychosis unspecified or something like that, because we're not going to jump into a diagnosis of schizophrenia just from the beginning. We, you know, it's going to take time to get the diagnosis or they might, they might, you know, like a teenager, they might show signs of, you know, just staying in their rooms and maybe they're paranoid and no one else knows about this paranoia but themselves. So they're locking themselves in their rooms because they're afraid. So that might, you know, that might appear as like depression, like, oh, they don't leave their room. They, they're they isolative. They're, you know, not hanging out with friends. They don't want to, you know, join our family gatherings and they stop doing, um, you know, the activities they enjoyed. So that might be looking like depression, you know. Um, but at the same time, it's like maybe they're, you know, thinking they're getting signals from above or their TV or things like that. So that might, maybe no one will become aware of that because sometimes um, it really takes a long time for for um, fa- even family or friends to notice that some an individual is hearing voices, you know, so that, that might take a long time to to really um, get diagnosed. And, and then also, I, I, I think a lot of times, especially in the hospital setting, we would, the most common diagnosis, I would say, would be schizoaffective, because a lot of times, it's the combination of, yes, they're having hallucinations, delusions, they're showing signs of schizophrenia, but there's also, there could be an underlying mood disorder, which possibly could be, you know, um, you know, because it's, I think it, it really takes time to differentiate because a lot of times it's like, I think it's a safer diagnosis 
like schizoaffective rather than saying like, oh, you have schizophrenia. You know? So it's like they're showing signs of depression or bipolar or a lot of times they can be like very manic. So they're doing very bizarre behavior, you know, um, or like they can be maybe promiscuous, things like that. Or um, a lot of times we see people using substances you know, so they're in a manic episode, but there's just so much to roll out that, you know, and sometimes if they're seeing different providers that, you know, let's say a person is hospitalized five, six times, they're not going to providers. So um, I think the lack of continuation of care for someone is makes it, it's kind of like a barrier in being diagnosed with possible uh, schizophrenia. And, um, you know, I know with some diagnoses, it's actually being diagnosed with one diagnosis over another. Like um, if somebody diagnosed somebody with, you know, ADHD and they take ADHD medication, but they're actually bipolar, like that can go really bad really quick. Is there uh, anything like that when it comes to like schizophrenia, if they're diagnosed bipolar and then start getting treated as bipolar, like that? Um, it can actually cause a lot more problems or is it just kind of like part of the process? When I think in regards to medication, I, I would say like, I mean, the two major medications that people usually get is like they're an antipsychotic medication or like a mood stabilizer. So if someone's maybe showing signs of both, I mean, I would say maybe, you know, because a lot of times patients are not just taking one medication, they're taking multiple you know, so sometimes there's like a whole list of medications, like this is treating this, this is treating that, you know, so like different medications is treating different uh, symptoms. So, I mean, I think also that's like a huge problem in mental health um, that, you know, we, we get complaints from the patient or the families like, oh, well, they're acting like this again, because maybe the medication is not working. You know, so then I hope that this person seeks mental health or or a medical provider that they can see so that they can get them on the correct medication. You know, but a, a lot of times I would say, like, even if they're showing any psychotic symptoms, anything like that, then I'm pretty sure um, a provider would most likely die or give them an, an antipsychotic medication. Um, I think that's a, a really interesting point is... Because, like you said, so the the main medications for schizophrenia uh, and and schizoaffective would be the mood stabilizer and maybe also an antipsychotic, depending on which symptoms are more prevalent. But like, what about someone who has bipolar disorder, but they're really manic a lot, and can that sometimes be misconstrued as psychotic? And they're given instead of a mood stabilizer, they're given, you know, or they're given a mood stabilizer, but they're actually psychotic or, or vice versa. I mean, I, I think a lot of the medications are similar. They might um, like b the big common ones. I mean, like an older medication that I would say a lot of doctors would prescribe is Haldol. I, I don't think a lot of people use that one anymore. It's like an older generation uh, medication, um, you know, like. Um, working in a hospital setting and, you know, with very severe mental health uh, patients, you know, I see a lot of um, long acting shots. I think um, 
we're kind of moving towards like, um, you know, cause it really helps, especially with the young population to like really remove the stigma of taking a pill every day. You know? So it's like that constant reminder, like I have an illness or I'm sick, you know, but I guess it's kind of like any other illness, like di- if someone that's diabetic, they have to check their sugars and insulin, you know, things like that. But I mean, the cool thing that a lot of people I don't think are aware, even families, we we have to do a lot of education is that there's other um, options now. Um, and they're, um, you know, LEI's long um, acting shots, um, injection, and they're like injections that they can possibly get once a month. I had no idea. There's, there's actually med- uh, medicine out there that you can just get once a month, or not just get once a month, obviously, but that is that long acting? Yeah, so they're, um, they call them, uh, yeah, long acting injectables. Um, and like a huge one that we, um, or the patients or doctors would prescribe or get is, uh, then Vega Sustena. And a lot of times we would just get boxes and boxes just because of all of our patients would be getting them, you know, because a lot of times, you know, if someone is not having symptoms or they're feeling a lot better, they might stop taking their medication without consulting with their doctor. So then at least if they take a long acting shot and then, um, the injection, they, it's it, it kind of releases. Uh, so let's say you get four hundred milligrams a month. It every, it's slowly releasing every day. So it's in your system, you know, and you don't and you might not have to take other pills. I mean, they're they're probably you might be taking other medication, but um, it just all really depends. It's it's we we can say, you know, this is the treatment for schizophrenia. I mean, there's combination of you know medications and. And really the person, like every person is different. Like, yeah. So like one person, like I know one doctor, she would give like 300 milligrams. So that might be enough for one person, but not enough for another person. So it just all really depends. Oh, uh, I just didn't know it existed. And I'm very excited to actually hear that something like that exists. Because <laughs> like, you're right. Like, you know, people, I, I hate taking pills myself as well. Like, you know, uh, who likes taking pills? So it's like, you know, having a shot to be able to like have it in your system to be able to just I have to just, you know, up it once a month. You know, that that seems pretty amazing um, to be able to do. I had not heard of that. And maybe it was because I was working more with kids when I was working kind of inpatient. Um, so I don't know. um that they uh whether they do that with kids or not but that's really really interesting see everybody you learn something new every day i'm very excited <laughs> yeah now this is for adults only they they do not prescribe for um any anyone under 18 yeah but i i think um it, it's a good movement and it, it's it's really you know i i think it helps especially with the younger uh, population that have been diagnosed with schizophrenia to really remove the stigma or that reminder every day of like, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I have something, but it's like once a month, you don't think about it. You don't have to, you know, you just go on your day doing what you got to do, going to school, got to work, you know, things like that. And, and you don't have to think about taking that pill every day. So now that we're on the topic of treatment, you know, because a lot of people think that, okay, well, with schizophrenia, it's only medication, but 
you know, are there in maybe in conjunction to the medication, are there some psychotherapeutic you know, modalities that might be helpful? You know, other kinds of talk therapies or other types of therapies that could be useful in, in working with people with schizophrenia? Um, yeah, so I, I, I mean, I think antipsychotic medication is huge and it, it is part of the treatment. But of course, with everything, with any mental illness, there's there has to be some sort of combination. It just can't be like medication. So um, some of the treatment that um, they might um, or that actually works is like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, behavioral skills training, and um, just really like a lot of support and and cognitive remediation um, intervention. So a lot of it is like cognitive, like, you know, like we don't want to challenge their thoughts in the moment because even early diagnosis can be like oh well the sky is pink going back to that um but it's like okay well let's what what is reality and what is not you know really working on those cognitive thoughts and 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 um you know making sure that they are able to see reality and and knowing the difference like oh yeah when I know I notice when I start getting sick again or when I'm having a psychotic episode, I start believing this or I start thinking this, you know, so really working on their thoughts and distortions and a lot of it is cognitive behavioral therapy, a combination of that. Yeah. And like you said, like recognizing the symptoms before they get so severe that they're they can't, you know, have that insight anymore. Um, that was something that uh, a couple of my clients would say, like, like you just said, like, I know when I start to like think this way or other people see this type of behavior in me, then that's a signal, you know, that the medication isn't right or that they're, you know, something's not right. And I need to, you know, it's a signal to kind of um, up uh, treatment, whatever, you know, treatment that is. Um, so that's that kind of insight, I think too, like making people understand how scary that can be too, for the person who's experiencing it, like the people I I've talked to, like when they say stuff like, oh, well, I know when this happens, I have to look out for that. And they're constantly looking out for and worried about that thing happening again. Or, you know, relapsing, you know, into a psychotic episode or whatever. And I imagine that this is part of the, you know, um, mental health treatment. The, you know, the therapy treatment is to kind of help them have confidence in themselves to be able to to take care of themselves. Yeah. And, and I think I just want to add that also, like, there, I mean, there's it's very common for people with schizophrenia to have um, also they could possibly have problems with drugs and alcohol because they're, they're self-medicating, you know, so it's like, Oh, I'm hearing voices. I want to make them, you know, lower. Or I want to make them kind of go away. So they might self-medicate, but I mean, we know that that might exacerbate the symptoms actually rather than helping. It, it kind of reminds me, I feel like a big part of, this kind of cognitive and behavioral work is how do we manage the symptoms? And, you know, if this is your thoughts, because again, like you said, you don't want to challenge the delusion because that's their reality. So how can they learn to work 
with you know reality even when their reality is different so like if they have this belief that you know the radio is talking to them okay well how can we still interact in an environment where a radio might be playing you know in a healthy way how do we still interact with that society uh or those kind of social groups i think can be really uh challenging for a lot of people with schizophrenia but i feel like that's a big part of the the kind of um cognitive work you know okay if th this is your reality fine but someone else's reality might be different how can you bridge those gaps and um it reminds me um when I, I worked in the hospital that i was in after i worked with patricia i had a client that you know kind of like what you're saying oh okay if i notice i'm having these beliefs that's how i know it's getting bad um and he was able to kind of after a long time of treatment and everything to gain that insight, he was able to say, um, oh, well, if I am hearing the radio say my name, that's how I know that my symptoms are coming back. Um, but mm. the medications don't always work fast enough and it can get really, really hard for me to be in the, in the community room where the radio is playing. Uh, and so I remember talking with him about, okay, well, instead of arguing with the, the radio, which is what he would do, how can we still be in that environment, you know, even though maybe there's someone talking to us, but we just don't want to respond to them. How can we interact and, you know, maybe we can play a game and that can distract us or, or something like that. So that was like a big part of what I was working on with him was, you know, yes, okay, the radio is playing, but you still want to interact with your peers. So how can you do that? That's hard work, man. Like that's that's no joke, and and that's that's what I want people to hear is this like this is this is an internal struggle that doesn't just go away with medication, and you know it takes hard work, you know, to be able to to deal with all this, and and you know, um, you know just function so like it you know giving people their their credit when they're they're doing they're doing the best they can you know again reducing that stigma and just you know having some compassion when when you know what people are going through when you understand what people are going through yeah and i i think a lot of times you know people with schizophrenia they, they can be very functioning adults you know, if, if they have the treatment, if they are taking their medication, you know, if they're if they're aware of their, um, you know, symptoms or like, oh, my gosh, I think I'm, I'm starting to notice this is happening. So let me go talk to my therapist or doctor or whoever they're seeing, you know, and and they can have very functioning lives and do work and school, everything, their daily activities and stuff like that. But you know, when they start noticing those those warning signs or, you know, it's like, oh, I'm starting to feel like this or I'm isolating, you know, or um, I'm not keeping up with my daily bills and doing what I need to do, then, you know, that's when I think it's important for them to reach out for help or, or maybe there needs to be a change in their medication because maybe it's not working anymore because they've been for years, you know, so... Now, I do have a very um, selfish question that I'm about to ask you, uh, Patricia. You were Benjamin's first, one of his first supervisors. Is that what I'm understanding? 
Benjamin. Yeah, unofficially. She didn't actually officially become the supervisor of the unit until later on, but she was the one who trained me. Yeah, you were his first trainer, okay, Patricia. So I'm little baby Benjamin. I just graduated from uh, social work school, and I come into the hospital, and I'm so excited to be here. Um, and I, uh, want to work with my clients and I want to learn all the things. That's what I imagine, how I imagine, uh, young professional Benjamin walking into this hospital. Um, Close enough. <laughs> at least that's my headcanon. Um, and so when he, you know, to bring it back to the, the podcast, you know, when he was dealing with some of his first schizophrenic clients or for anybody out there that's listening who may be new to diagnosing schizophrenia or, um, you know, diagnosing the more um, intense um, mental health diagnoses, um, you said that people tend to kind of pull back and, and diagnose maybe depression or this or whatever. What is your, what, imagining little baby professional Benjamin, what was your advice to him when he was dealing and learning how to kind of diagnose these things and recognize them and things like that? Well, I think he was always very eager to learn. Like he's like a sponge. He likes to absorb everything. So that was. <laughs> See, I told you. I knew it, Benjamin. <laughs> I said you were right. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you, you got it right. So, um, yeah, he's like wanting to learn just like, I think it, he was amazed by the work really, you know, in the hospital setting. And I mean, a lot of times it's like, obviously if, they end up hospitalized and something is going on outside in their environment or, you know, for them to actually, you know, end up hospitalized. So um, once they get what they would come to us is like, obviously they were either a danger to themselves, danger to others, or they were in, in a psychotic moment or, or, or maybe it was their first break. Cause we would see a lot of those too, you know, like in their early twenties going to college or, Sometimes it was kind of like, you know, maybe they smoked some pot and it went wrong and now they hearing voices or something like that. So a lot of it possibly can be, you have to rule out even substance uh, disorders just because there's always the combination or, um, you know, like um, dual diagnosis that they there's a substance use or abuse. And then now they're hearing voices. So it's kind of like, wait, is it, is this, um, are they psychotic only when they use meth or is um so i i think that's like it i i would say it's very challenging even like for a medical doctor or any mental health provider to just say oh you're schizophrenic you know you have schizophrenia because i think most people um are kind of conservative in their diagnosing and maybe they would start off with like again, uh, dying, uh, diagnosis of psychotic disorder unspecified, because we don't know, like, was it this, is it this, or is it schizoaffective? Is it schizophrenia? Is, what, what, you know, is it substance induced psychosis? What, what is it? Cause there's just so many diagnoses. And I, I think a lot of people really get 
um, misdiagnosed, and that's like a huge thing. And even uh, with such a severe uh, mental illness, um, there's it takes time, and 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 they have to make sure that they're really fit, fitting the criteria and and the timing and everything. Um, so, I mean, even, I mean, going back to like my first years of diagnosing kids, uh, you know, working in uh, outpatient health, you know, right out of grad school, 25 years old. And I'm like, who am I to diagnose these kids? Like I didn't even feel prepared and I already had a master's degree, you know, and I'm just like, who am I to diagnose? Or I felt like I was labeling someone with, I don't know, opposite defiant disorder or ADHD or whatever it was, you know, and I, it just feel right because I didn't feel like I had the experience of, you know, diagnosing someone, even though I had done my education and everything. But I think with time and experience and years of working with clients and patients, I, I think a clinician will feel confident enough to be able to see certain signs. And you're like, this is like you can read it in a textbook, like you know, this is schizophrenia is, but then you see it and you're like, this is what schizophrenia is. You know, same thing with you know, I had a client that was like, oh, you know, um, like, um, oh my gosh, it's going away from like, um, she had kind of like OCD st- uh, behavior, and I'm like, you can read about it, but I'm like, that's what this looks like it's in reality. You know, once you're like a mental health setting hospital or, or clinic, things like that, you're working um, with these clients and over, you keep seeing certain symptoms and they're, you know, because sometimes they can be, um, you know, like catatonic. And I remember seeing that in the hospital, like someone that's just putting their bed on the floor and they just want to sleep and someone might think oh that they're depressed but no they're catatonic and they're they have schizophrenia and and you know they're not wanting um you know um to do anything they don't want to move they they can't even speak and and we would have those severe patients in the hospital and i'm sure ben remembers like people that wouldn't say anything we we would try to interview them and and they wouldn't talk to us not because they didn't because in that moment they could yeah so what i'm hearing you say is that just like any good beginner clinician uh benjamin made sure he sought training and you know more experienced clinicians to seek out you know hey this is what i'm seeing you know what do you think you know is going on and as you do that you know time and time and time again then you kind of get a feel yourself and then you become the experienced clinician that may help, you know, the next generation come on in uh, and oh, figure yeah. that stuff out. Cause it is totally different from the textbook <laughs> yeah. than in real life. <laughs> oh, I can just imagine little Benjamin jump, jumping around with his uh, clients. And... I, I will say this. I was very eager. I was also terrified. Well, uh, yeah, he was just wanting to gain all the knowledge and he was just very excited all the time. <laughs> I, I, I was. A lot of the staff needed to, like, tell me to calm down a lot. Um, but, I, you know, I think to, to, for any, you know, student clinicians or new clinicians who are listening to this episode or this podcast, you know, that excitement is good. Um, but mm-hmm. also 
any fear, any, you know, anxiety that you have is also good because that's how you recognize your limits. Because I, I remember my first couple of weeks uh, on the unit uh, and Patricia, you might remember this, like one of the first clients that I had to interview was like a very like aggressively psychotic uh, individual. And I was kind of like scared uh, and I, I didn't want to go into the room by myself to talk to them because I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and that's okay to, to, to have that, you know, you have to look out for your safety as well. And so, you know, having support, having a, a, someone like Patricia who could train you and, and supervise you, but then also having other, you know, support is really important uh, for any new clinician, no matter what setting you're in, your coworkers are there for you. Um, and they see things differently and, you know, seek them out and, you know, lean on them. And it, I, I think that, that that goes for us seasoned professionals as well. If I had somebody coming in who was presenting this way, I would not, I know that I am not an expert on schizophrenia. I know I'm not an expert on psychosis, anything close to it. So even as a 12 year professional, I would seek out, you know, supervision or, you know, uh, consultation with someone who I know knows a lot more about the topic and how to refer this person to somebody who knows how to treat this stuff. Right. So, um, either way, like definitely reaching out, knowing your, your limits, even when you're, you know, 12 years into the field, you know, knowing your limits and knowing when it's time to ask for help as a clinician to other clinicians to, to do right by the patient. Yeah. And I think as clinicians, we're always learning. We never stop learning. And there's always um, going to be new research, new medications, new treatments. So it's like really staying on board with, you know, the continuation of education and, you know, learning new treatments and models and things like that. Um, you know, because there's always going to be re new research that comes up. And like, again, like, you know, we're moving away from like the initial older medication just because they have the negative, um, you know, symptoms kind of like they would. Um, and then there there was like a lot of things. So then now they're even making new medications to treat schizophrenia. I'm so I, like, I don't think you realize how excited I am to to learn that there's... <laughs> A medication that you take, or one of the medications, you know, in the the group that you could take once a month, because that for that could save so many clients so much time and effort and money and oh my gosh, it would be, it could be so amazing if we could make that, you know, somehow make that, uh, if science could make that the standard, that would be great, so much uh, better for people. Well, yeah. Patricia, uh, thank you so much. I think we covered a lot today. I know I learned a lot today, especially about little baby professional Benjamin, <laughs> um, <laughs> which makes me very excited. <laughs> um, so um, I just wanted to go ahead and uh, thank our, end it here and thank our listeners you know, if you all are enjoying our content, please review and rate us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using. 
um, so that other people can find our amazing content and learn all this amazing knowledge that, that we have on here, right? Um, we also are here to answer your questions about mental health. So please, please send any questions that you may have uh, to mentalhealthquest1 at gmail.com. Um, you can also find our podcast on Twitter and Facebook at MHQ, capital P, podcast. And individually, you can find me at Nat20Therapy on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, all the, all the places. Um, Benjamin, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me through my other podcast, My Hero Therapy. Still in its infancy, but we're, we're going to build it. Um, and that is Facebook and Twitter at My Hero Therapy. Uh, we really do thank you, Patricia, for coming on. Hopefully it was fun for you. Fun slash informative slash uh, I had fun. <laughs> yes, I really enjoyed it, actually. <laughs> it's my first podcast ever, but oh, I, I'm not my last. That's no, for sure. definitely not. <laughs> to all of our listeners, thank you so much. Um, please listen to our podcast, rate, subscribe, tell a friend, tell three friends, tell five friends. And, uh, you know, for anyone who has questions, you can contact us through the social or email. Maybe we'll tell you more stories about baby professional Benjamin. I got a lot of those stories. And maybe even baby professional Charlene. That is Mental Health Quest. Till next time, everybody, have a good one. Please take care of yourselves and make today amazing. Mm-hmm.